Father, we thank you that we can come to open the pages of your word. Thank you that we know that each one of us is in a different place in our spiritual walk. For there are some that are new believers to where they're soaking in everything for the first time. There are others that we hear words that we've heard before. Some of the things we've forgotten. Each one of us are going through different trials. And so it's always amazing to know that the Spirit is alive in action to take what we hear and to instill it within our lives, to change our walk, to make us more like Christ. And so that is what we ask today, that we come and hear your word and be changed by it. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear so when we leave this place, people can see Christ alive in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis chapter 49. We've been looking at the life of Joseph. And it's interesting because for many of us, we come, we worship, we sing, we pray, we give, we serve, and we like to leave church by the time when it's all over with a spring in our step and a smile on our face. We may not be getting that today as you leave this place because we're talking, we're going to be looking at one of those taboo subjects in which we don't like to talk about and we definitely don't like to hear because generally we only talk about it at someone's funeral because we're going to be looking at the concept of death. And so you may say, oh no, this is going to be one of those Debbie Downer messages. Well, I hope not. Because for the believer, when we look at death, it should be a sign of great comfort because of what Christ has done for His people when He died upon the cross because He gave us victory. But for those who don't know Christ as their Savior, it can be a very serious time, and I want you to be able to look, look at and contemplate the aspect of our mortality. And so normally, when you study God's Word and you look at it at a verse-by-verse aspect, we just move ahead to the next um, set of verses in the text, and this one happens to be about the death of Jacob. And I text Joey uh, throughout, throughout this week saying, I can't quite seem to get Jacob dead. And so I texted him this morning, I got him dead. And so it just seems like we're in chapter 49 for a while but that's okay. And so this morning we're going to be looking at uh, verse 28 and following to see Jacob's last words and to look at them. So look at verse 28 as I read out loud what is taking place at the end of chapter 49. And we find this, all these things, or all this, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with a blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people, buried me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham with his wife Sarah. 
There they buried Isaac with his ripe wife, Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. Then Jacob finished charging his sons, drew his feet into the bed, and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So as you can see, this isn't necessarily one of those happy, happy messages, but hopefully it will bring comfort to us because we don't know when we are going to be facing death. And so in chapter 49, probably even going back to at the beginning of chapter 48, we know that Jacob had a few moments um, left to live. He needed to do one last thing. He's about 147 years old at this point, and Jacob knew his time was short. So he, need to, he needed to adopt his two grandsons um, to become just like one of his, and then he needed to give blessings to his, to his other, other sons. And that's what we essentially have in chapter 48 and chapter 49. And so as he calls in his 12 sons and they stand before him, he musters every ounce of strength that he can to be used by God, and he sits up. He turns to the side of his bed with his feet hanging over the side of his bed. He's going to call them individually by name and give a prophetic word to them on how God is going to be blessing them in the future nation. And so he begins with Reuben at the beginning of chapter 49, and he goes down to where he explains to them why he was not going to be the preeminent one until he stops with Judah. Judah was going to be the preeminent one in the family through which the promised one was going to be coming to the entire nation, the promised one who would be called the lion of the king of the tribe of Judah, one who would be later called by the apostle John, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so then he continues to bless the rest of his eight sons in the final moments of chapter 49 where we left off last time. And so these words, as we have been seeing, are more than just a final goodbye that he says to his sons. They actually show Jacob's great faith in walk that he has with his God. And so it was a faith that he had to discover. It wasn't always there. It was a faith that God had to humble him because as he was growing up, he was known and lived up to his name as a deceiver to where God had to change his name to Israel, which means God preserved. And so his faith was not a faith that was based on works or activity to bring about some kind of pleasing aspect to God. It was a personal relationship based on belief to where God brought him to a place where if God said it, he believed it. And so then his belief was reckoned to him as righteousness just as his grandfather. And so as we look at verses 28 and following, I want us to hang this passage upon four thoughts. We're going to be looking at, first of all, in verse 29, well, verse 28, that Jacob had full confidence in God. And then in the next part of verse 29, we're going to see Jacob's intent of the blessing in which, he's, which he just gave to his children. 
Verses 29 through 32, we're going to be looking at Jacob's final request. And then in the last verse, in verse 33, we're going to be looking at, fourthly, Jacob's final moment. And so you may think that there's not much here, but trust me, we're going for, for the full time. And so we shall see. We shall see. So let's first of all look at the confidence that Jacob had in his God. And this first aspect is sort of implied within the passage because Jacob had to learn to put his complete confidence in his God. And as I just said, he, throughout most of his life, he lived up to his name as deceiver. Even while he was born, he was wrestling with his brother. And throughout his entire life, he wanted to be one to receive a blessing. And so his entire life was really based on deceiving and deception until God changed his name to Israel, to where God was going to preserve through his line a people. And so we come to this point in his life where God did change him, and he's going to end up having a faith strong and vibrant. He's not an old, angry man living with regrets, but here we find that he is dying with full confidence in his God. His faith was so um, extent that he is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 21, where there is a description of his great faith that he has as he is dying. In verse 21, we find, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped and leaned on his top staff. That is the great faith that Jacob had. It was strong because of who God was and how he has changed his life. And so he was walking strong with God without regrets that he's mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 11. And so in this part of Genesis chapter 49, he knew he only had a few minutes left to live. And he's speaking to his son. And it's interesting because if you had a few minutes left to live, what would you say to your family members who are around you? And so unless the Lord returns, each one of us will face death squarely in its face. We'll be in a, in a scene exactly like this as Jacob is. And so how are you going to be facing death when it comes before you? And as we shall see, Jacob is one in which he is ready to die. He is ready to move on. And so he has a faith in which he is going to, draw, to die strong because his faith is built upon the Lord. And I want you to die well, to die strong, not to be bitter in your old age, but one in which you have a vibrant, exciting faith in which it is strong in the Lord because you too should die in full confidence in God. So all of that is going to be implied as the, these verses sort of unfold. But in verse 28, we're told the intent of the blessings in which Jacob has already done. So look at verse 28, and we find this. And all these things, the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with a blessing appropriate to him. It's interesting because three times we have the word being blessed here. 
throughout his entire life, it, it has been one in which he, he was the one who wanted to receive the blessing. And he stole the blessing from his brother by deceiving his father. But now, with the right walk with God, he is now the blessing giver. And he is blessing the 12 tribes, which are the descendants, and he is blessing them, each one of them. And it's interesting to note within the passage, Jacob does not say the 12 sons of Israel. He uses the word tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why we said when this is a very prophetic passage that it looks more than just at his physical sons in front of them. There's a prophetic aspect in which it goes on to their descendants. And so it, the 12 tribes are going to be composed of the nation of Israel. And so he's blessing his sons, which implies the blessing to the nation, and here he is speaking for God. And it's interesting because as the verse begins to unfold, he blesses them with the blessing appropriate to him. That word appropriate means suitable, and it's translated that way in the ESV. If you have the authorized, it says, everyone according to his blessing. And so they receive a blessing that is unique to each one of them, which helps to underscore the fact that not all of God's blessings that He gives to His people in this lifetime are going to be equal. God blesses His people with a blessing that is appropriate individually to each one of them. And we need to sort of keep that in mind because we think that God should bless His people equally. Well, it's not so. Because God does not give out a cookie-cutter blessing that He has. And so this blessing that He is speaking about here is talking about an earthly blessing that is coming from God Himself. That here upon earth, God is going to bless His people with, with um, temporal blessings, but they're different from our eternal blessings, because that's a completely different aspect. Because with our eternal blessings, God blesses each one of us the same. We have the same blessings when we get to heaven equally from one another. We're all equally saved. We're all equally justified by faith. We've all been declared righteous equally before the Lord. We've all been washed by the same blood of Christ. We've all had our same sins blotted out completely and forgiven. We've all had the wrath of God equally satisfied by the death of Christ. We've all been freed from the slave market of sin and are no longer a penalty of it. We all have the same reconciliation with God and no longer are we an enemy with God. We have the same Holy Spirit within us. At the moment that we receive Christ as our Savior, and He's a down payment for our salvation. And then when we finally stand before the Lord, we will have the same glorification. So when we get to heaven, our, our eternal blessings are all the same. That's grace. But here on earth, our earthly blessings are different. We're going to go through different trials. God's people live in different cultures at different times. And so our earthly blessings are different and are given to us appropriately to as the need in which we have. 
And so this earthly blessing, as he um, has already talked about in Genesis chapter 49, sort of centered around the aspect on where each tribe would be living in the nation of Israel when they would settle back into the land. And so they would receive a land portion suitable for them. Some of the land was suitable for farming. Others were not. Some would be ranchers. Some would be tanners of leather hides. Some would produce cloths. Others would grow uh, grow vineyards. Some would be fishermen. Some would be priests. So depending on where the tribe settled, they needed a blessing appropriate to them. And so God had a different place, a different purpose, a different plan for each one of the tribes, and He would bless them accordingly to their needs. And so the same thing also goes with us. Here upon the earth, God may bless one person differently than another, give one person opportunities, and give another person a different set of opportunities. And so each One of us, though, has a unique place within God's kingdom, has been equipped with spiritual gifts to carry out the desires of the Lord as we grow in our faith and as we minister to one another. Because God has given me the opportunity to go to seminary doesn't make me more special or more spiritual than someone else who didn't have that opportunity. And not just for me to go to seminary, but for me to go and graduate from the master's seminary. I, I feel privileged, but I, God gave me that, op, that opportunity. But to be uh, utter, utterly truthful, I actually didn't choose to go to the master's seminary. I didn't apply there. I chose to go to Talbot Seminary, but to go to a branch of Talbot Seminary at John MacArthur's church. And so the day that I showed up for class, they said, oh, we broke away and we're forming our own seminary. Do you want to come? Okay. And so I came. And so that's how I graduated from the master's seminary. And I told people, God chose me to go there. I didn't choose to go there. And that was all part of God's plan. And I really wouldn't have chose to go anyplace else. But God works differently with yourself, gives you opportunities that he would never give me. You have opportunity to touch lives that I would never have the opportunity to touch lives. And so God gives blessings appropriate to the needs of each person. And so some he has called to preach. Others, they are called to sing or play instruments. Others, they they teach. Others are greeters. Others are nurseries. Some people, they come and they enjoy mopping the floor. That's okay. Each one of us are used greatly in God's kingdom, and He gives us gifts and blessings appropriate to that. And so we're here in this life, we can't complain how God blesses us with the earthly things. But we do know One thing, that God has given each one of us everything that we need for life and godliness to have our faith grow in Christ. And so that is Jacob's intent on why he blesses his his kids, to help reinforce the fact that God has blessed them appropriately. But then the next next aspect I I want to look at, thirdly, is Jacob's final request that he has. He's been speaking for a while, mustering all his strength, but yet 
God is not finished with him yet. He has one final request that he's going to focus on, and it's going to be focused on where he wants to be buried. And we find that in verses 29 through 32. Now, as these verses sort of begin to unfold, it may seem a little odd to us because in these verses, they are described to us in great detail. So much detail that Moses gives us these details, and they're forever recorded in God's Word. So Jacob is going to tell, this is my description of how I want to be buried. And So the question in my mind came up, why do we have so much detail about this in Scripture? And my answer, I answered myself was, because there's a purpose in it. So we have to sort of look at, well, what is the purpose of this great detail? Well, let's look at verse 29 and seem to unpack this. And then Jacob charged them and said to them. So his 12 sons are there, and he's going to give them an order or a command. That's the Hebrew word there for charge. And so this is more than just a request or an option. You know, if you get around to it, this is what I want to take place. No, this is another one of the orders that he gives to his family that he has given to them his entire life because he was patriarch, the leader of the family. And he tells them that there's one thing that he has left unfinished that they need to fulfill. And so what did he charge all of his 12 sons? I am about to be gathered to my people. It's an interesting phrase. It's a descriptive phrase. It's a phrase referring to death. We have a, a phrase um, that refers to death. I'm about to kick the bucket. It's, if I were to say that, you would immediately know what, what that means. Uh, I'm about to kick the bucket. I'm about to die. Well, this is a similar phrase in the Hebrew. I'm about to be gathered to my people. And so Jacob is saying the time has finally come and I'm about to die. But as, this as he gives this phrase, there's a little bit more meaning to it. Because he knows he only has a few moments left to live, and his time has now come. And so this phrase, as he describes it, is not only a descriptive way of stating death, but it's a beautiful description of the spiritual reality about death. And so for the believer, the concept of death should not have a different understanding and perspective than it does for those who do not. Death is something that we try not to think about until we are actually forced to think about it. Whether it's a tragedy or a loss of a friend or a loss of a loved one, that's when our mortality comes into focus. It's interesting because as I found the older that I've gotten and the more gray hairs sort of fill my head, that more of the people I grew up with are beginning to pass. And so it keeps begging the question in my own mind, well, how much time do I have left if my friends are sort of dying around me? Because each one of us think we're all going to live a long and productive life, but there's no guarantee of that. Because there is one guarantee that we do know, that unless the Lord tarries, we're going to face death square in the face. Though it seems like he, he may be returning any moment now, because it's crazy out there, but we're all going to face death. 
And so how are we going to face death when it's right in front of us? And here Jacob gives us how he is viewing and staring down death in his face. And he says, I am about to be gathered to my people. Well, there are four things I want to focus in on when he says this phrase. The first thing that um, I want to focus in on is that as he says this phrase, he is underscoring the fact that there is life after death. He says that I am about to be gathered. And so he's implying that there is more life after this life. That life does not end with the end of his life. And so he's implying that our consciousness will not be annihilated, that, it, that who we are isn't just going to stop, that there is more. That after you die, you will be alive. And as Scripture begins to unfold, when we become alive in the next life, we're actually going to be more alive than what we are now. Now, if you have a worldview that doesn't believe that, if your worldview states that we're just the result of random elementary processes, you think that that's not true. I don't buy that. If you believe that we came from slime mold and that through millions of years of, of change, that through natural selection and evolution, then you're forced to face to the fact that the real purpose that we live in this life is to live for today, enjoy life as much as we can with the most amount of pleasure because we have no idea when we are going to die. And so, for you who believes in evolution, there is no life after death. Our existence just comes to an end. We're born, we live, and poof, it's over. And so, that's where evolution takes you. But that's more of a minority position because most people think that there is a great power out there, the grand pooba. You know, there's, there's some kind of entity to where there is more li life that is going on. So maybe you have a worldview that states the fact that, well, everyone's going to get into heaven. That no matter what religious path you're, you are on, that just as long as you're sincere and practice that golden rule to treat everyone just like you would treat yourself, you're fine that God will let you in. Well, as we shall see in a moment, the Bible does not say that. That, that not everyone will be getting in to heaven. Or maybe you have a worldview, well, you're going to get a second chance. You're going to get reborn. You're going to get reincarnated to do it all over again. But the Bible is, is very clear. In Hebrews 9 and verse 27, it says that inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this is judgment. We all have one life. That's it. There is no second chance. There is no do-over. There is no reset. And so... We get to see that Jacob had a firm faith on what God has told him. He is, say, he is saying that I will be gathered. 
And so it helps underscore what the Bible clearly teaches, that we're all going to live forever. There is more to this life in the years that we live here on earth that happens later on. But the second things that we can deduce from this phrase is that, number two, that when the believer dies, they are immediately with the Lord. Though it's not definitive here, but Jacob is just going to give us a glimpse. He's going to crack the door on what happens right after we die. And so he's saying that when we die, we will be gathered. Not one day we're going to be gathered at some point in the eternal future, but we will be gathered. And so he knows that not only there is life after death, but he knows the timing for when this life takes place. And so throughout church, throughout church history, there has been a notion to where that when we die, we're just going to go to sleep for a while, and then until that great resurrection takes place, and then we're going to wake up and have our eternal bodies. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 talks about when our Lord returns, but it, it says this, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, about those who are asleep. Well, this, not, this isn't talking about that the body is in the ground and our soul is going to be sleeping, but the body looks like it's dead and has no life. And so we are going to be with the Lord. And so when a believer dies, they immediately will be with the Lord in heaven. And that's exactly what our Lord told Luke 20, in Luke 23, in verse 43, that as he was dying on the cross, he tells the, um, the thief next to him, truly I say to you, Today, today you will be with me in paradise, that you will go straight to be with the presence of the Lord. And Paul is going to underscore the same thing, that when we die in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8, he says, to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord, to be dwelling with the Lord. There will be an aspect we will be immediately with him as soon as we're absent from the body. So we get to see that there is no gap in going to heaven and here on earth. And so there's no soul sleep. There's no um, sleeping until the resurrection. But every person who has ever lived will live forever. The question is, for God's people, we're going to be with the Lord. But for those who don't know and don't walk with the Lord, there's a different outcome. And so, so for the believer, we immediately will be in his presence. There's no intermediate holding place outside of heaven in which we will go, which means that there's no purgatory that we go to where we slowly, slowly pay for our sins to become righteous enough to finally be allowed to enter into heaven. You can't find that in the Bible anywhere because when you come to Christ, you have your past sins forgiven, you have your present sins forgiven, and you have your future sins forgiven. They're all forgiven. And at that point in which you come to faith, you have Christ's righteousness, his perfect life given over or imputed to your account. And so when God sees your spiritual position that he has, he sees Christ's righteousness because all of your sin was placed upon him as he was dying on the cross. 
And so there is no intermediate place in which you slowly become perfect enough. You can't find that. Paul calls the, uh, the, um, the church at Corinth saints in chapter 1 as he begins to tell them how, other, how sinful they actually are and need to repent of those sins through the rest of the book. And so yet they're called saints, holy ones. That's what happens to the believer. The believer are holy now in God's sight. We just have to grow in our faith to sort of live up to our position that we have in Christ. But there's a third aspect I want you, that we can deduce from this passage. And thirdly, that there is going to be a reunion of God's people when we die. Jacob says here, I will be gathered with people. There, we're not going to be all by ourselves. There's going to be others. Is, um, in, within the context in which he has just said, in comparison to the covenant, there's going to be an unca- uncalculable amount of people, like the sands of the sea. And so there's going to be a reunion, a fellowship that is going to be taking place. We're not going to be by ourselves playing a harp on some cloud being bored. It's going to be a great time of fellowship, a great time of reunion, especially for the loved ones that we, that we miss who are in Christ, and especially those other saints who have lived before us and who are going to come after us to rejoice in Christ together, to find out how God has used them for His glory. It's going to be a great time, and so He's going to be gathered with people. But yet there's a fourth aspect we can deduce, deduce from this passage that there is an exclusivity in the afterlife. Jacob is going to qualify who he will be with when he dies. And he uses the pronoun my. I will be gathered with my people. It's not all people, but out of all humanity, there are going to be separate ones, a unique group of people. This my people refers to believers goes back to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17, where God gives Abraham a further explanation of the great promises, and he said, indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand on which is on the seashore. And so this is the group that he identifies with, my people. Those who are in the world are not Jacob's people. They're only followers of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and now the God of Jacob. I'm going to be with my people. Not those people who don't know God and serve Him, but my people. And so this aspect continues also within the New Testament. For you all know John 3.16, for it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but has everlasting life. There's a separation for those who believe in him will have everlasting life and they won't be one to perish in eternal torment because he gave his only begotten son. And so there is this aspect to where there is God's people. Those are the ones who are going to be with Christ in glory. We also know that in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, where Christ is 
saying that my sheep will hear my voice. He has a separate group of sheep, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Christ has his sheep. He knows them by name. He speaks and they follow him. He gives them eternal life. They will never perish. They can't even be snatched out of his hand. There is a separate group who will be with Christ. But for the other sheep, they're not given eternal life. They're given eternal torment. It's only Christ's sheep. And so this group are only those who have placed their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sending the promised one, which is found in Jesus Christ. It is those people who have eternal life. So not everyone are going to enter into heaven. But the only road, which is the narrow road, going through the narrow gate, leads to eternal life. And so if you've placed your faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, you are going to be with His people. And Jacob is dying. And he's saying, I'm about to go, and I'm going to be with my people. That was a joy. That was a comfort to him. After all of living his life and seeing how wrong he was, after hearing God's promises in which he promises, that he promised to his grandfather and then to his father, and how he's going to um, be using the family in the future to bring about redemption through the promised one, it is going to be a great time of rejoicing for him. He is going to be with my people. A great time of fellowship. But now we know, as the New Testament unfolds even more, the great part of it is that we're going to see Christ face to face. We're going to see our Savior who died for us face to face. The Savior that we love whom we have never met. That's why I love 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, because he says the same thing. He says, though you have not seen him, which is Christ, you love him. You've never met him. How do you love him? We just do, because he died for me. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We're going to see him face to face, and what a great day that will be. It's going to be a glorious day, and that's exactly what the hymn writer put it this way. He says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that, that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout the victory. That is implied within this phrase, my people. When we get to heaven, we will all be in the same place. We're all going to be all together. But yet there's one more thing when we think about being with God's people all together. When we finally get to heaven, there will be no separation of believers. We have a lot of separation here right now. But in heaven, there will not be a place just for the Baptists or a place just for the Lutherans, or a place for the Nazarenes, or the place for the Presbyterians, and a place for the Pentecostals, or a place for the Independents. No, there's not a separate place. But yet some of them may have to go to theology class, but that's a, that's a different sermon. But we're all going to be in the same place. 
we're all going to be together because we're all the same people. I remember right after I, I graduated school and visited a friend down in the deep south and visiting a church, and after the services, a gentleman came up to me and he said, so, how long have you been a Baptist? Uh-oh. I said, well, I've been a Christian for 20 years or so. I flipped it on him. Because in heaven, there are no Baptists. There are no Pentecostals. There are no Methodists. In heaven, there are only those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. There are only those in heaven who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. There are only those who are in heaven who have been born again. There is only one body of Christ and one citizenship in heaven. So when a person asks me, well, what kind of Christian are you? My response should be, I'm a blood-washed follower of Christ, the one who died for me, who has cleansed me and forgiven me, who has lavished his blessings upon me that I lack nothing, who adopted me into his family, who placed his predetermined love upon me, who has given me his spirit to dwell in me as a down payment, who continues to teach me, who empowers me to live for him and to love for him, all for the praise of his glory and his glory alone. That is who I am. That is who you are if you have placed your faith in Christ. We will be with God's people forever, and there are people, and Christ is the head of it, and we will see him face to face. But yet in the few moments that we have left, we have another three and a half verses to go. And so you'd think, well, there's probably not much here that we find because basically Jacob is going to be giving his burial instructions. This is how I want you to bury me. And so if you're reading through this in your morning devotions, you may think, well, let me just jump to chapter 50. But you would be thinking wrong because these verses are very significant. And so he wants to reinforce to his sons the importance on where his body was to be buried. Look what he says in the next part of verse of the verse. He says, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The my fathers there is referring to his grandfather Abraham, the one he gave the covenant promises to in Genesis 12, and his father Isaac. And so he wants to be buried in the same place where they're buried. Huh. I wonder why. Because basically, we get placed wherever we get placed. But for him, there was a difference. There was an importance for him to have his body to be taken back and to be buried in the promised land. And so why this is important, firstly, is Jacob, well, um, Jacob is actually repeating himself here because In Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 29, he's already asked Joseph 
to bury his body in Egypt. And so he, he says, uh, and he makes some sort of swear upon it, he's deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please don't bury me in Egypt. And then in verse 30, when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt, bury me in the burial place. Then he goes on in verse 31, swear to me that you will do this. And Joseph said, I will. But he repeats himself here to all of the 12 sons. You think Joseph will forget about it? No. Well, why is it repeated then? Well, the first thing, one of the first things that I learned in Hebrew class when I took Hebrew was when something gets repeated in the Old Testament, it's there for a reason. Second thing I learned that when you begin a, a reading a book in Hebrew, you have to begin in the back and then start that way. But that's besides the point. And so it is being repeated here. So with it being repeated, there's some kind of emphasis. And the emphasis is going to be there's another three and a half verses left to go. And that's a lot in Scripture when something is repeated in that much detail. And so these final words are significant as he is about to breathe his last few breaths because he needs to underscore this again to prove a point. Look what he says, bury me with my fathers in the cave, verse 30, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field in Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. This description here is going back to Genesis chapter 23, to where Abraham purchased some land in the promised land for a burial place for his wife, Sarah. Ephron the Hittite, after hearing Abraham's story, wanted to give him the land. You can take the land. You can take the cave. Take it. But Abraham said, no, I want to purchase it. I want it to be mine and for my people. And so it's looking back at that this would be a symbolic first fruits of what would come to where God would give them the entire land. So did Abraham have part of the promised land while he lived? Well, yeah, he purchased it. But God was going to give them the entire land when they go back to settle in in the book of Joshua. And so he buys the field which has the cave. He fully owns it. And then in then, um, then going to verse 31, and there he buried Abraham with his wife. And so it's there for him in the woman that he loved. And there he buried Isaac, Jacob's father, and his wife, Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. And so it's interesting, just as, as a footnote, Jacob mentions his first, his first wife, the wife he really didn't love, for he, he, he liked his, his other wife, Rachel, with great more favor, with great more love. But we have her listed here. When you actually look at Scripture, we're, we're not told when actually Leah died. And so, but yet, it was significant enough to have her buried in the family plot for being first wife. I believe he was honoring her. 
honoring her maybe in a way he didn't fully realize because the promised one would come through her, the unloved wife. For the wife that he loved died in childbirth as he was running for his life from his brother Esau, and they had to bury her at the side of the road because they had no time to get to the burial plot. It was too far away, and the body would decompose before it got there. So they buried her at the side of the road. But it's interesting because in 1 Samuel chapter 17, that spot where they buried her on the side of the road became a very famous spot in Israel. You could go visit there this day, supposedly, and so you can see it where Rachel is, is died. But she's mentioned here, I believe, as a place of honor. There my wife Leah is buried. And so it begs the question, why this great detail? Because it wasn't for, for them, it was for their descendants. He's going into great detail on where he wanted to be buried, not based on geography, but it was based on his theology. There is reason why he is going into great detail. It goes back to the covenant. It goes back to the promises that God gave to Abraham and God gave to Isaac. It is a statement that he is make, making that he did not want his bones to be buried in Egypt because Egypt was not the promised land. Canaan was. Canaan was where God was going to be fulfilling those promises that he gave to his grandfather and he gave to his father. It is a statement showing that he was all in. He had full confidence and faith in God. He was all in, so much so that he did not want his, his body to be buried in Egypt. It goes back to, once again to Genesis chapter 12, to where God chose Abraham to leave where he was brought up, to go to a place where he did not know. And God told him, I will give you a land, I will give you a seed, I will give you a blessing. And God will make his people a great nation, and he will give them a place to dwell. He will rise up, the promised one, who will, who will become the king of kings to rule it all, and his kingdom will last forever. So at the heart of his statement here is the covenant that God gave to his people. Jacob has seen God work in his life, and he believed fully in those promises that he has made. So much so that even his dead body, he did not want to be buried in Egypt because it was not the promised land. And so it was to be a symbol for his descendants that even though he was outside of the, of the promised land at this point in his life, that he was fully committed to God, he was fully in. It was to be a sign of unity. It was to be a sign of identification. It was a sign of solidarity for God's people. So for the future nation, as they settled into the land, they would say, our patriarchs are here. There's Abraham. There's where he's buried. There's the bones of Isaac. And there's the bones of, of Jacob. It was a sign of what God has promised his people. And so that is why he's spending so much detail. He knew his soul and spirit would be with my people, but his dead body would stay behind and was to be a sign in a remembrance for my people. And so Jacob was fully confident in the, in the extraordinary faith in the promises of God. 
That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, uh, we looked at that by faith and as he was dying, he blessed the sons, and this is sort of part of it, worshiped and leaned on his top staff. And so he had this extraordinary faith in God that he would carry about, even though those promises weren't fulfilled in his life, that they would be fulfilled within the lives of his people. So Jacob wanted his body to be buried back in the land, which was all about the promises and covenant that God has made with them. And so he had the kind of faith which stated that I am all in for God. So it begs the question, who are your people? Are your people those are the same as Jacob's, that they are my people? Those saints that are in the church, those saints that you know, are you identified with them or are you more identified with those who are outside of the church and God's people? Begs the question because it may exactly tell you where you are as you look at your mortality. But yet, there's a fourth thing in a few moments that we have I want you to look at, and that's at the verse, in verse 33. We see Jacob's final moment as he breathes his last. He finds this at the beginning of verse 33, when, J when Jacob finished charging his sons. And so these are his last words, and as we begin to see what these last words that he has been saying, one of the things that stands out is what he doesn't say or do. He's not in a state of panic. He's not in a state of fear. He knew God was, was faithful to carry out the promises that he has, and he knew he was one step away from being God's presence. And he wasn't fighting to cling to the life that he had. There was no struggle left. He was ready to go because he had full confidence that God would bring him home. If you had to stare down death right now, you may not say, I, I could never do that. I have a hard time sleeping at night because of the fear of death. Let me give you this one verse in, in John chapter 1 and verse 16. We find that for his fullness... We all that we all received grace upon grace. We receive grace, unmerited favor to us when we need it, when we need it. When we're about to be at death's door, I believe that God will give us the grace to endure it without fear. We have fear just because of the unknown. We just don't know what it's going to be like. Is it going to hurt? It's going to be different. It doesn't matter. God's going to give us the grace to get through it, grace upon grace, to be able to walk through those dark doors of death without fear. And this is where Jacob is at. He says, finishing charging his sons, he drew his feet from the bed. So somehow when he started, he, he, got, he sat up. He turned to face them, to be right in front of them rather than just facing straight up. And so he put his feet back into bed with the last bit of strength he had. He breathed his last. And so Jacob's tank was now empty, and he breathed his last. Now, 
It's interesting because Moses could have stopped right there. But he gives us one more phrase to, to, to tell about Jacob. And he restates, and was gathered to his people. It's repeated. Why? To underscore the fact that that's where he was. He was there. He went to his people. And it's interesting, and I just sort of throw it in, there was no floating up, looking down at everybody as he sort of floated through, through the ceiling. There was no light at the end of the tunnel he had to walk to. There was no wind blowing the curtains as, as, um, as he died. It doesn't say that. It just says that he went with, with, with his people in glory. His body would be buried in Canaan, but his soul would live on with his people. And so those were Jacob's last words that he has. What would be your last words if you were to die today? Because there is no guarantee that we will have long lives. And so there are basically two questions that I ask people. First, first one's an if question and the other one's a why question. The if question is, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Most people try to answer that by saying, well, I hope I'd go to heaven. I, I, hope, I hope I'd get there. And the second is a why question. Well, why would God let you into heaven? And most people would answer by either an action or an event. And if your answer to that question is, an action or event, your faith is in the wrong place. Well, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian family. I was baptized. I go to church. That's why God's going to let me in heaven. I give to the church. When I was in high school, I threw a stick on the fire. All those are events. All those are actions. All those are our best efforts to try to please God. But the prophet Isaiah tells us that all those efforts are like filthy rags. They're worthless. Because where our confidence should, be, uh, should lie upon is that we need to be born again. We need to be born a second time. We need to be one in which we can say that Christ died for me and my faith is in His death that he took my place, that when God poured his wrath upon him, it should have been me. That is why I'm a Christian, because he made me like himself. And so those were Jacob's last words that he had. But yet, though these words could give us comfort, there are greater words of comfort given by another man. These words are the greatest words ever spoken in human history. They happened over 2,000 years ago, and they were given as he breathed his final breath. Because at 9 o'clock in the morning, they nailed him to a cross. And with each breath, he would have to pull himself up. And this is after he was um, beaten and whipped twice. And he hung there. And then at 12 o'clock noon, the skies turned dark at, at as if it was midnight. And this was then when God was pouring his wrath down upon his son to pay for the sins of everyone who would believe in him. 
And the prophet Isaiah tells us that God was pleased to crush his son as he hung there. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, after bearing our sin, he said these final last words, it is finished. Those are words of great comfort because it was there he became our substitute. It was there he died in our place. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, resulting in that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It wasn't that Jesus became a sinner because as he was hanging there upon a cross, he was still as sinless as he always had been. God made him a sinner because he treated him as though he was a sinner, even though he was not. That is why he took our place. He treated him like I would be treated if I had to die for my sin. And so those are the greatest words ever spoken. By it, in his death, the atonement was fully made. The pardon, the pardon has been purchased. Forgiveness had been secured. There was nothing left to do for our salvation except to receive it as a free gift. There's nothing more that we can do to add to our salvation because his shed blood was the only atonement there was for sin. And so the work of salvation was finished at Christ's death upon the cross. Salvation had been accomplished, and now salvation just needs to be applied. So as we begin to look at our mortality and we come to the table, the table is a sign of great death of, our, of what Christ had done upon the cross. It was a brutal death. It was a painful death, but that's just the physical aspect. God poured his wrath upon his son for everyone who were to believe. That's where the suffering really kicked in. And so if you don't know the answer to the question, if I were to die tonight, where, where would I go? You need to turn to Christ today, for today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you need to see your sin, to turn from your sin and to receive what Christ had done because you can't earn salvation no matter what you do. You need to become saved. Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath. And that's where it starts. And so when you look at your mortality, you may be one you need to turn to Christ because just the thought of death does bring fear because you don't know. You're hoping that you can do something, but you can't. But for those who know Christ, when we come to partake at the table and we think about our mortality, this is a great picture. This is a picture of a celebration because Christ died for me. And so that is why we come to partake. And so I'm going to have the men come forward as we prepare our hearts to partake at the table.
Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could look at Jacob's life and see how he viewed his mortality. There was confidence. There was strength. He knew he was all in. And that is what happened to every believer when they think about how God shattered where we were in our own pride, in our, our own sin. And we saw our helplessness because of our Savior dying upon the cross. And so, Father, thank you that we can partake at, at the table. We pray this in Jesus' name.